Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I am very honored today to have a, a wonderful guest. Uh, he has been a, a visionary of this industry for many days, uh, for many years, and I want to kind of open up for a second. I have very few regrets in my life, but one regret that I have happened in 2015 where I had reached out to my guests and I said, Hey, uh, I would love to come see your show. Uh, you're in Las Vegas. And, uh, I, I didn't know if I would get anything back cause I didn't actually know him. I only knew of him. And I reached out and I'm like, hey, is this available? Can I come down? And he, he sent me an email back and he said, I would love to have you at my show in, uh, I think it was July of 2015. And it was the Rush 40th anniversary tour. And I was ecstatic. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to get to go see the show. I'm going to go get to meet uh, my guest. And that night, my daughter had to go to the hospital. Uh, it, w- it wasn't something that I thought was terribly important, but it was something that my wife thought was very important. And so that trumped anything else on the plans that night. There was nothing else going to happen. So I ended up going to the hospital with my wife and the, the doctor looked at us and she, w- and the, she said to us, she's like, well, this isn't really that big a deal. And, uh, and we went home with, uh, I think, some Tylenol and I didn't get to go that night and I don't regret my decision, but I do regret missing that show. It was Russia's 40th anniversary tour. And my, my first response was like, well, clearly there's going to be a 41st anniversary tour and it just never materialized. So I never got to see rush. And that, to this day, that's one of my regrets. And so I'm really excited to talk about it. Uh, my guest today is Howard Ungerleiter. He is a visionary award-winning owner and partner at Production Design International. Thank you so much for joining me today, Howard. I, I appreciate you taking the time to sit with me. You're welcome, Chris. It's my pleasure, actually. So that uh, that story, I've, I've waited a long time to get a chance to tell you that story. I... I really, really, really wanted to come that night, and uh, and I and I brushed it off because I'm like, well, clearly they're going to come back, and uh, you know as well as I do that they, they never, they never got to come back. You know, on that tour, it, it was a surprise to everyone that that was the last tour, and not just because of what has happened, but just the way it ended, and it ended so abruptly, and 
it ended before it was supposed to end. So um, one of those things that um, unpredicted sort of took all of us by surprise. And uh, here we are now, uh, you know, looking back, I'm sorry you couldn't make it to that show. <laughs> you know, it's, um, that was the last tour for, for us all. Yeah. And, and, as, and for myself there as a lighting designer slash director, um, that, that's my passion, that's my love. And uh, when Rush went away, I had to search out and look for new horizons. Um, and that's what I've been doing uh, since the, the end of Rush. And uh, you know, when you work for someone for four decades, they, they are family. And I could respect you not coming because, you know, family is always comes first. Yeah. Thing. You know, I, you have to put that. If you're a decent person, you'll always put family above anything else because it is the most important thing. And four decades. I hate saying that because it dates me, but, you know, I've been around for doing shows for decades. You know, when, when I started in the industry, Chris, it was um, 1971. So, Man. Yeah. yeah, full respect, Howard. That's uh, that is an impressive number right there. No, thanks, buddy. Uh, you know, you see a lot, and there are so many experiences. We don't have enough time on this podcast to go through them all, but... We'll touch upon a few, you know, but um, the ride for me, I, I have zero regrets as well. It's been a fantastic, unbelievable journey. And I have met thousands and thousands of people. Not that I remember them all. <laughs> I've met them. <laughs> I have met thousands and thousands of people through the course of this amazing business um, that I have, I am one of the happiest people, you know, in the world because I've had this incredible career. I can only imagine that when Rush made the, the tough decision that they had to make as an industry or anybody who knew you, we could all collectively go, oh man, that's, that must be tough. I'm sure Howard's going to have to adapt somehow. And nobody really could have known what it was to be in your in your shoes. But now I think the entire industry, we all have a little bit more of a sense of what it must have been like to be in your shoes, to just have the entire, not only the rug, but the floor pulled out from under you. The trap door had opened and you've fallen through. Yeah. Uh, industry wide. We're all in that trap door sensation now. Yeah. It, 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 it's devastating to, to this industry. And to all of us personally, and I don't think the normal world recognizes the fact that the industry that brings them joy, love, and entertainment, as well as the same industry that brings, you know, um, conferences and uh, corporate environments to people, it, it has been decimated for the time being. And we don't know when it's coming back. And there are many people in the industry, large span of people 
from all walks of life that have been affected. Mm -hmm. And I'm not quite sure that the governments know that this industry is making no dollars, zero dollars right now. We don't have a hope on, you know, making anything for probably until 2022. And unfortunately, I know that I have hope that it would come back in a few months. But uh, when I listened to what uh, Dr. Fauci was saying on the news the other day, he was saying that um, it'll be a year after the vaccine is administered before they allow gatherings again, which was kind of depressing because I have such a positive attitude. I'm, you know, I'm thinking early 2021, we're gonna be back at it. But I just have to think that way and send my thoughts into the universe, you know. That's in our human nature, isn't it? Uh, come February or March, where we thought it was going to be two weeks, then we thought it was going to be one month, maybe two months, and now six months later, we still don't have any clear return plan. I know. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we are crying for help. Anyway, yeah. we get it, you know, right now, and, uh, and hopefully they can hear us because um, – when times were down and people were down, it was the entertainment industry that lifted them up. And it's been that way forever and ever, even through the depression. It was always entertainment that came to the rescue. Now we need rescuing. Yeah. You're no stranger to that. Uh, being in Toronto, you, this is not the first outbreak that has uh, affected our industry. No, um, I mean, um, you know, I, I know that you had interviewed Martin Kelly and he, he was, touching a bit about SARS and, you know, we've had everything, H1N1, SARS, um, you know, but this has been uh, a blindsiding pandemic. Like, um, you know, we, you watched movies about it on, uh, you know, on Netflix before it even happened. And, you know, we ignore those, those signs. People just think, oh, it's a movie, it'll never happen. But I think, uh, didn't um, Mad Max take place in 2021 or something? <laughs> it feels like it, doesn't it? It does. It feels like we're heading that direction. You know, I'm, I'm ready to get a Hummer and like get into it. <laughs> so by human nature, when, when things are terrible and, they're, and all the things are looking bad, what we do as a species is we come together and we do shows exactly. and for the first time we that that ability has been stolen from us toronto is a perfect example when things got tough we like well let's put on the stones let's do an even bigger show to show support and solidarity and now we don't have that ability no it's a completely new world as i call it the new world order but um <laughs> It is. Uh, it feels it, that way. It is quite interesting. So you know, we're going, we're going into studios now and creating shows. So it's, um, you know, there's a lot of people using green screens. There's a lot of people using the new technology and importing themselves into any environment they want to, you know, via modern technology. And um, you know, that is a new form of entertainment. It, it's quite funny, because in the 60s and 70s when, when rock and roll like, it was like the Wild West. We were pioneering new ways of entertaining people. And there wasn't much on television in the way of uh, being able to see an artist. 
every now and then you may tune into a television show and see someone way back when, before probably half the people that are listening to this won't even know who this person is, but Ed Sullivan had a, a show and it would go on Sunday nights and you would see the Beatles or you would see, you know, up and coming Sonny and Cher or people like that, <laughs> who, uh, you know, but to go to a rock show, to go to the Fillmore East in New York City, or to go to Woodstock or go to a gathering of this nature was exciting. And as, as this industry progressed through the years, that excitement turned to video. And then everything you saw was on television. And then you would have your MTVs. And up here in Canada, you had much music. And it, it was, you know, a completely new animal it was video. So instead of people, people would go to concerts, but they would also be watching their favorite artists on television. One of the things that made Led Zeppelin huge is they never, their manager never allowed them to do videos in the early days and put anything out. No one could see them unless they actually went to see them live. And it was an event that made the event so much more amazing. Then when, when video came out and everything was video, 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 all of a sudden all your shows had to have video. And most of the audience would spend the time videotaping the video screens and not paying attention to the artist on stage who <laughs> was actually performing, you know? Yeah. And um, I had, I had a, uh, an experience once when I went to see um, a show recently, well, over the past three years, let's say. And it was, uh, it was one of Mark Brickman's David Gilmore shows. And I thought the most amazing thing about it was there was no video screen. And I thought that was the, the coolest thing I've seen in a long time, not having that video screen in your face and being a lighting designer, you know how excellent that is. Mm -hmm. You could actually see the lighting of what you're doing. And uh, it's a challenge, you know, combining video out there with, with lighting and getting your end result exactly where you like it, you know. How amazing that the absence of a video wall is the new shock value. Like you don't have a video wall. That's shocking. It's awesome. You know, and it's, it's just like I always said, what the, you know, what the strongest cue in the world was. And that was a blackout. Yeah. Blackout's the most powerful cue you could execute. Yep. You know, in, in fact, the more lights you have in the rig, the more powerful the blackout is. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And what you follow it with is even as exciting, you know, to come out of the black with something that's insanely spectacular. You oh, know, man. you know, those it's, it's interesting because lighting now to me that it's so visual and creative lighting. There's only a handful of, people that are doing creative, that can execute creative lighting. Now, there will be no lighting aside from television lighting and what you see on, on your uh, virtual. But uh, that's a really good way to segue into the, the bulk of what we need to talk about today to come out of a, a blackout into a beautiful queue. Uh, right now, Howard and I are doing our very best to promote Light Up Live which is the Canadian version of we make telling the world that we need some support. 
can we take a few seconds to talk about light up live before we get into your uh extensive career sure extensive career can run for days you know that right? uh, i have so <laughs> much to talk about uh okay. so let's get into what light up live is real quick and what you're doing and what everybody else can do to uh, show support and solidarity i definitely will like one day i was in my car and I got a phone call from Marcel Fairburn. And Marcel said, hey, Howard, you want to come and join our coalition? And, uh, you know, I, I saw a lot about it. And I said, well, what do I need to do? He goes, well, you want to uh, represent Canada for us? And I said, sure, I'd love to do that, you know. Well, at first I said, um, I'm not sure what's this going to involve. And he goes, you sound like you don't want to do it. I go, well, no, no I I'll do it. I just want to know what you are your expectations. He goes, well, you're going to get as many buildings lit up in red on, you know, in September and early, like I think it was September one or two or right. so it was like, he gave me like 10 days and I'm thinking, <laughs> all right, well, 10 days, that's pretty ambitious. And uh, I got into it. So I started bringing buildings on board and talking to them. And in the, in, in the middle of all this, as I was moving forward, and I sat in on some of the Zoom you know, calls with Brad Helms and Marcel and Cosmo and all these people that were on. And uh, as I pursued it in Canada, I was getting texts from people saying, back off, you're messing things up. And you know, what are you tr thinking that you're doing? And we're doing this on the 22nd of September and you're, you're confusing people. And it was like, it, they weren't good emails and text I was getting. So I had to do a little bit of damage control. Okay. So I sort of had to back off from what I was doing for the U S group. Right. Cause it was just, it's not going to work because Canada was already in motion. Right. With, the live event community, which, you know, which is lightuplive.ca. And um, their hashtag was light up, you know, hashtag light up live. Right. So I took all the people I was doing business with and telling them, you know, what I expected. And I'm, I moved it to the 22nd. So it coincided. And one of the gentlemen that was leading the pack was Morgan Myler here in Canada, who is um, vice president of IATSE Local 58. Right. And Toronto. He, yeah, but he had, a, he had an assistant, another gentleman who's quite amazing with media and video um, named Rob Duncan. And the two of those guys were spearheading the committee and they brought me on board behind the scenes to help them and assist them, in which I did. Cool. So, yeah. So in doing this, I secured uh, Lawrence Gowan, who's the lead singer of Styx, who also has a solo career in Canada before he was even the lead singer of Styx. He had his own very successful career here in Canada. And he did a, uh, a video for the coalition, which was spectacular. We're just finishing up on the edit actually today. Okay. we're going to put it out there and, you know, we'll make it available to everyone. And it just speaks to our government because there is a difference in governments and the mm -hmm. ask, what is called the ask. Yeah. The ask for the U.S. was the government was ignoring what was happening. 
up here in Canada, the government maybe didn't know about the entertainment industry, but they were surely assisting small businesses, right? And the entertainment industry was full of small businesses where they gave, they gave us a 75% wage subsidy, which helped us pay our employees. And uh, that was, was amazing. So I'm personally, production design was keeping their employees working all year and, and paying them. We did, wow. you know, we, we know it's coming to an end in December and we gave the employees a five month notice saying in December, if it doesn't change, you know, we're going to have to say, you need to go on to what we have here as unemployment insurance, which is called CERB, right. it's a Canadian version of that. Mm -hmm. and hopefully hang on until we can get back. And we did damage control, so my company could at least hang around till 2022 and see what we can pick up in the interim on, you know, just myself and my partner and a warehouse full of about three tractor trailers worth of gear. Yeah, because you, you have to be available to pick up whatever comes available. You know, there's there's going to be bits and bobs that that show up, and if your if your doors aren't open, you can't pick those up. And it, it's really important to just even have a door that's available to be opened. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, luckily we rented um, our office space to a marketing company. So they sort of need things that we do and it's sort of serendipitous in a way. So we'll, we'll see how it all pans out. It's a very interesting time. So this coalition of um, combined with another group of people called, um, you know, we make events and mm -hmm. we're all doing the same thing. I think what we really need to recognize, although the government asks are different in every country, right? We're all, the same as far as what we're crying for. We're crying for recognition and we're shouting out for awareness that our industry is now stopped. Yeah. It has been decimated and we want it to come back and we're all chopping out the bit. There's only so much time you can spend in your home before you have oh, to yeah. get out and do something. Yeah. So I'm getting out and doing something next week. I'm lighting up a bunch of buildings here in Canada. We're putting about 30 laser systems inside of the Canadian Opera House here on University Avenue. Oh, that CN, sounds spectacular. The CN Tower is going to turn this color red. And uh, in, in all of the Broadway theaters in Toronto that are owned by the Mervish family, we're going to change their billboards to show the lightuplive.ca and the hashtag lightuplive. Wow. Um, the guys from Christie Lights and Solatech and PRG, everybody is coming together across Canada and lighting buildings. The Budweiser stage in Toronto and Ian Gordon from Christie is dealing with everything out in Vancouver. We have, you know, there's Peter Eady from Christie who's taking care of Ottawa and Solatech's doing what they can in Montreal and Quebec. So it's been a real, real good turnout. And uh, when you look at the website, you'll see is, you know, right now we're closing in Canada's, although we're a huge geographical country, there's small in population, right? Mm -hmm. But we're going to have probably four or 500 
locations lighting up in red, which is great for us. That's amazing. For the audience, lightuplive.ca is the website. And the Correct. hashtag is hashtag lightuplive. That's it. And for the French, I'm going to butcher this. It's éclairant <laughs> le son. Not bad. I think I butchered it, but uh, I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that we have to mention is that even though we make events and Light Up Live are on the same continent, the, the, and the entertainment industry uh, extends to both countries, the, the financial situation and the government situations are completely different between Canada and the US. Absolutely. Can yeah. we talk a little bit about that? Like you were talking about your warehouse, like how, how are you able to continue to maintain your, your warehouse? Well, we have to pay money out of our pocket in Israel. So what, what has happened is the government of Canada has um, mandated to landlords that they need to give us a four month break on rent where I believe wow. that, yeah, the government's going to give the landlord 50% and the landlord will have to eat 25%. And then us as the tenant will eat 25%. So they're assisting in that, but first for a few months and the rest of the time we're paying out of our pocket to stay alive. And, um, we will, you know. It's, it's something. It's, uh, obviously, we've been tossed a bone, which is, and it's a sizable bone comparatively, but it, it's still not what, it's definitely not the end goal. No, and also the Canadian government gave us a subsidy of 75% of our employees' wages, and they've been giving us that since the beginning of March when this happened. So, wow. yes, the asking Canada is way different. Now, in the U.S., you have a gifted angel in the name of Michael Strickland, who's been going to bat for our industry in the U S and you have to give him kudos and amazing credit and uh, for standing up for our industry. And he is an amazing advocate for this. And yeah, but yeah. it's a different ask because you know, in the U S you know, the government, I, I don't believe the government has come to, your aid with the only thing they've come with is possibly an you know, unemployment, normal unemployment insurance, but no aid, right? Which is a shell of what it should have been in the first place. The, the unemployment system down here is very tough, very convoluted, understaffed, underfunded. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the governments are different and I'm sure overseas in England, it's different. And you know, it, we have to respect that we're all in the same boat. It's not an us and them, it's we, regardless of what the government's proposing. This campaign on, in, the, in the whole United States, Europe, everywhere in the world is us yeah. crying for awareness so the governments can become aware that our industry is not coming back. And somehow we need assistance. Luckily, yep. the Canadian government is assisting. It's amazing, actually. Right? Yeah. And 
you and I know that all of the money that comes from the government through you to your employees is just going to get recycled back into Canada. Definitely. It's not going anywhere. It's, it's, it's your money coming back to you when you need it the most and then going back to Canadians. Yeah. And also, in addition to all that that I discussed, the government lent us a $40,000 loan to all small businesses, which is payable tax-free as long as we pay it back within two years. We only have to pay back 30000 okay. of the forty they lent us. So they've given us ten. You know, so those are all the things that are happening here in this country. So that's another reason why our coalition here said we're not going to be pushing cases into the middle of the street and stopping traffic because we don't have to do that, you know. But we do have to make the government aware that we need an extension on this. They yeah. just can't shut this down. Like We know this industry is one of the few that are, there's no hope for us to come back right now. Yeah. In Canada, it's more of a, a statement saying, hey, remember all the times that we helped you when you were down and you were out and you needed love and support and, 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 a, and an emotional release? Well, now it's us. Now we're the ones that need that. We, we're the ones that love putting together these events to show community and bring people together. And now, now we can't do that. Yeah. So but we are doing it. So we're doing it anyway. We're just not getting paid for it, but we're doing it. Right? <laughs> and we're doing it out of love, Chris, out of love, as you yeah. know, you know, yeah. like I have passion as, as do you mm -hmm. for what we do. And there's nothing big. You know, I started, I'm, I'm a musician. So I, I feel the music when I'm, when I'm out there creating a show and, you know, I love to do what's what I call, lighting choreography and to me that's that's my fuel that's my um that's my drop okay so mm -hmm. doing you know being able to create a show and light up a you know an, a, a band in an arena and make people feel great and also shock them <laughs> <laughs> That's what I love to do. And when I created my shows, I always put myself in the seat of a fan in the audience. When I used to create my shows, I sat everywhere in the building. I looked at the, everything I was creating from different angles just to make sure that it was great. And in the early days, I electrocuted a lot of my crew guys when I had <laughs> ACLs and I would lean on the lighting board while they were in the truss with their hands on them. And <laughs> Oh, man. I know. Don't you miss those days? <laughs> I, I do and I don't. I do and I don't. Yeah. Uh, you and I, we've, uh, you've, got to, you've got about 10 years on me, but we don't know anything else outside of this industry. You and I, we can only pivot so far. My, my degree in theater is not going to be very impressive to anybody outside of the entertainment industry. I mean, we, we can adapt, but I mean, to completely transition to something new is it's not viable for us. I mean, we, you and I could go bag groceries or something and with our, with our information, but that's, it's really not the goal is I mean, we're, 
we're tied to this industry. This is true. We are tied to this industry, but when the industry stops, you have to pick up an alternate plan, right? Right. Absolutely. Good thing I worked in restaurants as a chef before I <laughs> got involved in this. You know, I have something to fall back on. Maybe I'll open up my own place for takeout. I don't know. Yeah, Who knows? I, I'd, I'd eat there for sure. It would have great lighting. <laughs> Do you feel that the entertainment industry has been a a loyal industry for the for the most part? That's a very, very double-edged sword. The entertainment industry has its loyalties, but no one is loyal to you. I think the yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, the entertainment industry is basically a bunch of people who will use what they need and who they need to use, chew them up, spit them out, and move on to the next. Unfortunately. That's reality. Yeah. There are no loyalties in this business. When I worked for Rush, it's probably one of the few bands that had loyalties because when I first started with them, I put a crew together. They already had a, three guys, like a small nucleus. But as they grew large, I was their tour manager, tour accountant, as well as a lighting designer and director. We put a crew together that was there for decades and you know it was an amazing crew and no one needed to say what needed to be done it was just done and you know that there was not a lot of bands i mean i'm sure steve cohen and billy joel have a great uh, connection i believe steve cohen's probably worked for billy joel longer than i've worked for rush and um you know, there were, there were other bands like Grateful Dead had an amazing loyalty internally. But most of the industry, no, there's not a major, you know, there's no loyalties. Maybe to the, to the vendors, because the vendors are providing a service. Mm-hmm. You know, I hate to say it, but it's almost like a hooker. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're paying for a service, and when you're done, you see you later. Yeah. You know, that's, that's this industry. But if you could wrap your head around it, I mean, there's some... There's some very colorful people in this business. And, uh, you know, if you can be with the right team of people, they'll, they'll keep you working for a long time. Sometimes I've always been perplexed by where the loyalties lay in our industry. I've seen some people who I think are just amazing and they just keep working and working and working and I, and I, and I get it. And sometimes I see people like you are not that good at your job, but you've been doing it for a really, really long time. And it, sometimes it, it's so weird how that perpetuates. And uh, the, 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 the lo- go ahead. Oh, sorry, no, no. I'm gonna say some of these people are, are there for financial reasons to management, right? I think so. I think maybe they have some some photos of their of their clients that they can, they can never release or something, <laughs> or maybe there's just some little spark that somebody sees that I don't, and I, I I'm, you know, I, I'm the first one to admit when I don't see something, and that's I, I don't get it. Sometimes I've I've just seen people like, wow, you have messed up so bad, and you just keep keep working. Yeah, I mean, you know. And- 
you know, they, they have a phrase, say, they, you know, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of managers out there that pay peanuts, right? <laughs> so they get what they get, right? Mm -hmm. So I would imagine that about 90% of my audience knows exactly who you are and where, how you got into the industry. But for the 10% that don't know, can we kind of go into your origin story a little bit and how you, how you embarked on a 40-year journey with, with Rush? Yeah, that's crazy because there was a four-year journey that started before the Rush journey. And that four-year journey was pretty incredible because um, I was a naive young kid. And, then, you know, I was 18 years old, went into New York City looking for a recording contract for the band that I had been in. And um, I wanted a record deal. I wanted to be one of those artists that were up on that stage. And uh, I had no clue how to get a record deal. But I had gone to a college that I was part of the Student Activities Council. And there was this guy that I met named Sean LaRoche, who was in New York, who was affiliated with The Who and all these bands. And um, I always remembered his name. and. When I was looking for a recording contract, I figured I'd look Sean up and for a few weeks and knocked on his door to try to get, you know, to see him. But his secretary kept blowing me off because she knew I was invalid person to go talk to Mr. LaRoche. So I kept coming back so often that I knew when she took her lunch break. And one day when she was up here at lunch break, I just walked behind her desk into the hallway and looked at all the offices until I found someone and said, you know where Mr. LaRoche is? And he goes, I'm Mr. LaRoche. What can I do for you? And I just went, oh, no, you don't know me. But, you know, I, I think we, we spoke once when you came down to the university and we were doing, you did a show. And I just want to see if I can get my band a recording contract. So he, he looked me in the face and he goes, um, listen, kid you're not going to get a recording contract. He says, out of every 10,000 bands that come through my office, there may be one that's successful. And I can tell you right now, it's not going to be your band. So if you want to grow up and learn about this industry, why don't you start at the beginning? Start at the bottom and work your way up. And if you need some help, I'll give you some names. You can knock on some doors and maybe if you're lucky, you'll get a job getting coffees for some big mogul. I said, really? <laughs> so shut down, man. I was so depressed after that. <laughs> so he goes, I said, would you really give me some names? He goes, yeah. And he wrote down a bunch of names and he goes, just go visit these people, but don't go and walk into their office like you did to me. He goes, go through the right channels. I said, yeah, well, your secretary kept blowing me off. So I said, that's your job. We don't want to see mm -hmm. people like you normally. <laughs> so I was demoralized. It was like that movie Swimming with Sharks with Kevin Spacey. I don't know yeah. if you've ever seen that, but that was funny. It was like that. So I went and knocked on doors and I came across this guy, this company called American Talent International. They were agents and um, they had just moved from having a company that was small. It had two acts. I think they had the Brooklyn Bridge and Stevie Wonder. And they, they were called Action Talent, and they changed their name to American Talent International. And there was a guy named Jeff Franklin, who was the uh, president, and then Ira Blacker and Saul Safian were their, his partners. And I went there and knocked on that door, and I got myself a job 
as a, in the mailroom and as a, a, a tea boy, a coffee boy, right? And so I ran around getting coffee. Great start. Meetings. Yeah. Ten months later, and something that you would be very humored by, they were looking for a Fleetwood Mac date because they, they were the agents for Fleetwood Mac way back when, when a guy named Clifford Davis was the manager. And um, they were looking for a Fleetwood Mac date, and I overheard a meeting as the coffee boy. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I went to a university near my house where I lived, and I sold Fleetwood Mac to them. And when the contract, I convinced the girl in the contract department to write the contract up. And she said, you know, I'm going to get fired for this because you're not an agent. And it's got to go across Jeff's desk. And he sees these initials. He's not going to know who you are. I said, well, she goes, the only way I'll do this is if you get me a deposit. So I had to go back to the school. I got the deposit. I went in there and the rest was history. After that, I got called into his office. I got yelled at actually for doing it. <laughs> At first, you know, because this guy, Jeff Franklin, was a lunatic. He was like a Kevin Spacey in that movie. Okay. Right? And he just yeah. said, if this is what you want to do, he goes, you got to prove yourself to me. But he goes, but I appreciate this, this gig. So that gig went off. It was really a cheap one, too. I mean, back then, it was like, I think I sold it. I think he wanted five grand for Fleetwood Mac, and I sold it for eight. And I haven't remembered the opening act was just, band called Flash that they represented. But anyway, I became an agent over a period of time. And I was trained by Bruce Payne, who was later became Deep Purple's manager. And I was out there running around, making sure promoters would pay the bands, representing the agency, booking shows. And my, my start was cutting deals. You didn't ask for permission at all. You just hopped in there and you saw an opportunity and you took it. That's it. That's what I did. You know, I just like jumped in the deep end and there was hundreds of stories that go with jumping in that deep end. But I just remember, you know, one of the first lunches that I was ever invited to, they said, come on, we're going to lunch. But nobody ever really ate lunch. They would go down to the corner. This is right at 888 7th Avenue in New York City, because I'm from New York originally. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm, I'm dual citizen. We go to the Carnegie Tavern, and all they would do is drink Bloody Marys for an hour. <laughs> and then they go back to the office, and everybody was like a, totally hammered, and they would just keep cutting deals. It was like the Wolf of Wall Street. It was like a, there, were, there were times people were standing on their desks and breaking their gold records and screaming at promoters, and it was just like madness. It was kind of cool. I actually enjoyed that. Yeah, that's... That's what everybody outside of our industry still thinks our industry is, I think. Yeah, well, it is sometimes. It is. Yeah, it can you know, be. Depends, you know, and so over the years, I worked with Fleetwood Mac before you, uh, Savoy Brown, Deep Purple, Atomic Rooster. I worked with acts like David Bowie. I worked with uh, The Who. I did, you know, gigs with Brian Auger's Oblivion Express, which was one of the most amazing educations in jazz for me. I never knew Brian Auger taught Keith Emerson how to play B3, because he's an amazing B3 player, if you ever know who he is. And Brian Auger and Julie Driscoll wrote a song called Season of the Witch a long time ago. That was a big hit. You can always Google it and see. These but, are all days of paper tickets and oh yeah, you know, pre-internet, pre 
And I could tell you stories about paper tickets that are just ridiculous, you know, but it'll just take up too much time. As an agent then, you, I mean, you didn't have the, any of the luxuries that we have now. Like you had to send mail and stamps and phone calls. Yeah. You had to sit by the phone. Buddy, I had to send posters to Michael Cole up in, up in Canada that, you know, posters of bands we represented, you know, and free goods, free goods. You know what free goods are? Uh-uh. Record labels back in the early days used to give you what's called free goods. So if ATI had 60 bands under their, uh, their roster, so the record labels would send them complimentary albums that you can send out to promoters who were buying the bands you were promoting so they could hear what it was like. Okay. Yeah, so those free goods sat in a room. That you couldn't just send them, them a YouTube link. Some of them went to promoters and others went to other causes. So it was kind of a, it was the Wild West. Okay. And how long did you, so you did that for four years before? Roughly, yeah, from 71 to roughly 74. Okay. And in 74, they signed Rush, and they asked me to go up to Canada to make sure that the band would like them. And they said, listen, they don't have a tour manager. Why don't you go up, go up there and make sure they like us. And uh, that's what I did. You've gone completely well. Are you, are you still interested in your own band at this point, or have you abandoned your band at this I point? I'm sorry, guys. I had to abandon you, but they know that. Yeah. Yeah, I abandoned them, but I gave them so many free tickets to shows. They were very <laughs> So now you've abandoned your, your band. Yes. Abandoned become being an agent. Yes. So works with agent, gets the bands, right? So there's a manager. Right. There's an agent and a promoter. So the agent finds the bands, gives, you know, and approve, gets the manager to approve the date and then picks the promoter. So okay. the agent is, is sort of like a political figure. Got it. Because he's the promoter's bread and butter. You mess with the band, you mess with the agent, you're yep. messing with your livelihood. And I was the enforcer for a lot of those times when I have to go into the promoters who try to not pay bands the right amount of money and go collect it for them. So by, so by necessary, I would imagine. It is very necessary. So <laughs> after that was all said and done and I harassed many promoters, later on when I was with Rush and went in as the tour manager and they would like be overly nice. You know, it was like, oh, there's that guy from ATI. Be nice to him. Give him whatever he wants. All right. <laughs> so it kind of worked out well for the band and for and you know for everybody. And but so now you you've almost completely pivoted to tour manager now. Well, I was tour manager. I mean, they sent me up there. Like their management didn't even know I was coming. I sort of walked in and asked for ten grand, and they were like, "Can you have a seat, please?" Here, <laughs> and, and you know. I know it now, but back then I didn't. And uh, the lady at the front desk who was there, who's there, had been their accountant and is still their accountant to this day, um, Sheila Posner, she goes, who are you? And I said, well, my name's Howard Underlater. I'm from New York. And I was sent up here to take Rush on tour. And I need 10 grand for my float. And I need a hotel. Yeah. You're like, yeah, that's who I am. I walked in. They were surprised. They didn't have any money. They couldn't even afford to put me in a hotel, but yet I'm there. 
And um, I then began the camping out journey and sleeping on couches in the manager's homes for the next few months while they figured out what's going on. And um, eventually, Getty Lee said to me, hey, I have a friend, you know, you know who Oscar Peterson is? I go, yeah, I know Oscar Peterson. He goes, well, Oscar Jr. is a good friend of mine. And uh, he has an extra, you know, place for you to stay if you want to just stay there. And, you know, he's a lot of fun. and You can hang with him for a while, which I did. So I went and hung with one of Getty's friends and it's Oscar Peterson's son. You know Oscar Peterson is? I don't. Famous, one of the most famous jazz pianist in the world okay right world renowned okay he's no longer with us but uh nor is his son actually but i hung with uh oscar jr for a while and then eventually i got my hotel room okay a few months like this is when rush didn't even have a drummer this was i never met john rutsey that was the first drummer uh-huh and auditioning drummers during this time period and then they found neil and then we went on tour and went on tour with a band called Uriah Heep. You've heard of that? Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, it was very interesting. And then uh, off we went. I didn't know it was going to be four decades of touring. You went from being an agent, uh, collecting 10 grand on a whim, to living on couches at your own, your own volition because you're like, this is where... Did you choose to be there? Or is it what? That they sounds like a, a huge I, leap of faith. I was on a mission. They sent me on a, you know, this was like a special reconnaissance mission. Make sure they like us mission. Okay. You know, make sure that you represent us to them. So okay. they always will be with us, right? One of those. Got it. That, okay, that makes sense. Okay. So they saw the spark in Rush, and they, they sent you, like, make sure that Rush yeah, so they said remembers us. Like, you know, you can, you know, we'll give you two choices. You could do that. And I say, well, what, or, or what else? Or we can fire you. You make your decision. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So how was the first tour? It was amazing. It was, like, kind of a lot of fun. It was in a car. We drove around the country, you know, and uh, – we did uh, Uriah Heep, and the first show that we we did, what well, I did with, with Rush at the time, was in the uh, Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, and it was the first show they opened the dome roof, because it was a ground support system. And it was a sweltering hot day, and that place was roasting. And in the middle of the set, the roof opened, and this air came in, and it was just surreal. And from what I hear, it took them months to get that roof closed after they opened it. (laughs) Uh, So at this point, you didn't know anything about lighting. You didn't know anything about tour managing per se. I did know about lighting because I did lighting for Savoy Brown. Okay. And and I was, my hobby was lighting when I was in school. and And for the short stint that I had in college, I took uh, drama. Okay. And um, of course, my whole life was drama after that. Um, I did get I did get tossed out of school for a fraternity prank that went sour, and um, that thus started my journey to Sean LaRoche's office in New York. 
Wow. What was the what was touring like? What was the lighting like at uh, at that junction? Lighting was whatever the headliner would give me, which at that junction, if they had 600 lights, I would get 12. Mm. And uh, sometimes the PA system limiters would be cranked to half. And, you know, it was kind of a daunting. There was only one band when we first started as an opening act that treated us like royalty and was Kiss. It was the first time we had full reign of lots of lights and big sound and nobody hassling us. And the two bands, like we got along really well with those guys. It was a big, like every night was a big joke. It was like fun. They were the ones that were willing to give you the whole rig because they, they knew that their, their show was, oh, they, they were yeah. always going to take it to the next level, no matter what you did. Yeah. They wouldn't give me the whole rig. They'd give me like half of it, which was more than I ever had. And you know who the lighting designer and director was? It was Robert Caron, the owner of Upstaging. Wow. Yeah. You're going yeah. back. Buddy, you've unlocked the, the vault. <laughs> I go, it's a way back machine. It's before anybody was born. So It's weird to even be able to talk about this, but I mean, this is like pre-Socopex. This is pre-ACL yeah. even? This is when we used to go to the theaters and use what's called piano boards. You know what those are? Piano boards. You had them in your high school. Okay. These big feeders that's, that were in a wall that would, you would have to click them to lock them in and you'd have these x-ray lights overhead. And there was a, there was a, the Michigan Palace Theater in Detroit was big on these. Every theater had one. And when you would throw a cue, you'd have to have a master panel, like it was like a Frankenstein thing. And you'd have to throw this master switch while all the other ones were locked in, all your dimmers were locked down with lights right. that you wanted to crossfade to that scene. And I, sometimes I'd have to have stagehands on headsets and you call lockdown cues. It was way different than eventually it turned into, you know, more modern Avo came out with some boards, and, you know, TTI came out with some boards, and it was way back. This is in the 70s, buddy. It's like lights were in their infancy. Yeah. I remember there, there were bands that just played without lights. Some of them just went in their arenas, you know. Just turn the whatever's available and just lights. turn it on yeah. and go. Or just use a bunch of spots, and it's like, let's, let's have it. My idol was a guy named Chip Monk. Ever hear of him? Yep, yep. You know what he did that would like blew everybody away? He lit the Rolling Stones. Yep. He decided that he was going to use spotlights on the ground behind the stage. And how was he going to light the band with the spotlights? He put a huge mirror on an angle downstage. And he spotted the band in the mirror. Interesting. Yeah. I've never heard of this before. Oh, yeah. And it blew me away. It blew me away so much that it got me even more into lighting. The mirror is downstage of the band? Yep. Up in the air on a 45-degree angle to the band. So you can see the whole stage in the mirror. And all you're doing is spotting who you want to cover in the mirror. Where are the spotlight operators? Upstage. On the, on the ground. Get on the ground. out of here. Yes. 
So I'm behind the band. I'm shooting up at a mirror you back. Can see, you can see the whole stage and the entire band in the mirror. People were touring with this giant mirror? I don't know if they were touring with it, but I saw it in New York at Madison Square Garden. I. This must be one of the, the lost relics. I've never heard of this. Yeah, well, this is what happened. I okay, don't think so, it was that big a deal. I couldn't have even been like a mylar. It was something where you could reflect it. It was not. Okay. It, it, it was just like having a truss on an angle with this huge mirror on it. Interesting. Yeah, different. That is such a, a, it's a solution to a problem that, you know, if, if you can't send up truss spots, well, you just put them on the ground and you send a mirror up. Yeah, I just think that this was like one of his innovations. It really got me thinking. This is what made me start doing things outside the box. And that's why I use C-Factory because when I started, I used to go to the Fillmore East in New York. Are you ever familiar with that place? Uh-huh. Fillmore East and Fillmore West, Bill Graham's temples. Yep. They had a show called the Joshua Light Show and the Glenn McKay's Headlights. It was those old 60s oil backdrops with things going on. And it was like, a, that was your video projections of the past. You know, and everybody would drop acid and sit there and like it would freak them out and everything became surreal. So Bob Goddard and Bob C and all these guys that worked there created a lot of this stuff. And when I started with, uh, before Rush, I did some work with Blue Oyster Cult as an agent, but Elliot Crow that worked at C-Factor became their tour manager and he couldn't go on tour one day and he said, hey, could you cover me for you know, a couple of weeks and be, you know, do the tour managing for Blue Oyster Cult. So I got permission from the agency to do that and went out and did it. And that's where I got a chance to see a lot of the laser stuff, you know, and, um, and just to understand about touring more and production. And uh, it, was, it was kind of interesting. Back then, this guy named Rick Downey was doing lighting. I think. One of the coolest effects back then would be like the la the uh, the oil projectors, where you're just kind of swilling around and just kind of putting <laughs> stuff to make a, an infinite amount of motion on the uh, on the backdrop. Yeah, and the greatest thing was on the fly, right? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like it was pre-recorded or anything. It was oil it was being made on the fly to go with the music. It was just insane. That that was where I've got my inspiration. Like so many crazy looks and you know it was so cool and uh later on i had c factor build me like crazy outlandish effects and you know that i stumbled across the aircraft landing light it was not called that when i stumbled across it this friend of mine tim pace down in washington you know washington's a very military area they had a military auction a marine auction got it marine beacon light it was called and it was 13 volts, and you'd have to use eight of them. Okay. And the size of a par can, but I never saw one before. This is like early 70s. Right. So I was friends with these guys, and Tim Pace was friends with these guys. A guy named Ron Merkel had a company called Atlantis Lighting in Virginia. And one day he said, listen, we need some of your par cans. I want to throw these lights in their par cans and check them out. And we hooked them up and we smoked the whole place up. And uh, we turned them on. 
And it was like, whoa, look at this. Like that, right? And I made him open the back door and I went out into the sky, lit the sky and was like, wow, this is amazing. Holy shit, look at that beam. So thus I put them in par cans and we built a little rig out of it for the first Rush tour. But before Rush went out, Atlantis Lighting said, well, we have little feet and I want to use these for little feet. And since we lent you our shop to use for your testing, I want to put them out with Lowell George and Little Feet. And I said, all right, go ahead. So they used them for Little Feet first. And then when I got to C-Factor, I made them do that. And then I asked the guys at C-Factor, I said, I'm tired of having them all coming up at the same time. It's just boring. I said, is there any way I can take like 10 groups of eight and turn them into 80 individual lights? And they said, yeah, we could probably make that happen. We could put transformers on each one. I said, that would be amazing. I said, can we build a console that would have pin matrixing so I can pick and choose what lights I want at what time? And then over, the, over this time period, we built this custom board. Meanwhile, for my main lighting console, my buddy Tim Pace, who worked at you know, this place called The Bayou, it was a club in Washington where you know, I was hanging, built me this console that looked like it was out of Star Trek. It had joysticks built in, so you can trigger submasters with joysticks. So I was able to take, like, the joystick would hit four points, and each point would be a submaster. So I have, like, two joysticks, so you can come rotate them, and all these changes would happen. It would be, like, insane. That coupled with Bob C's board that he made me for the ACLs and being able to pick and choose whatever combinations of ACLs I want at any time and have submasters for that and chase modes for that, via pin matrixing, it just gave me this world of excellence that nobody else had. So I guess I was kind of famous for the ACL when it first came out. When I think of the demands that designers make today, they say, hey, can you go buy the newest technology or something? You were actually going and asking them to invent new technology for you. Not just buy the newest thing, invent something new for me. Yes, exactly. And they did. Every tour. They had to. I know. And they did a great job at it. You know, it was like um, Paul Edwards was involved. And, you know, there were, I mean, all the C-Factor guys that were there, it was incredible. And uh, they said, you know, every time we see you, I know that I'm not going to be sleeping <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> they know, know that they're going to have to go to find a, a military yard sale or something. Like, well, we got to find some new technology to impress Howard. Well, have you ever heard of a triarch? No. Yeah. Well, so I'm touring and, you know, with Rush and I want something like that nobody else has. And, uh, you know, so my buddy, Tim Pace, he was like a guru. He was in the back and I'm like, you know, I just love the way carbon arcs look. I love the I love how when you use our carbon spotlight, it's it's great until you have to do a trim change. But you know, back then for all the people that don't know carbon arcs, they were spotlights that would burn carbon posts. And when it got down too low, you'd have to switch it. So you'd have to lose a spotlight while they switch the carbons. So right. you'd have to time your show so one spot covers the other. Well, the triarchs were a mind-boggling effect. They were big squares. They had a stand about, I would say, 12 feet by 12 feet. 
they had three carbons that came together in the center and you would put a diffusion over them and when you put smoke in the air and you put these on it was like big g was sending a light through the upstage part of the stage and silhouetting the whole stage and it was so bright that i had to actually cover it with diffusion and color to tone it down it was so bright and the only way to shut them off is to kill the carbons so i'd have to use them and i used them in 2112 for when they would go on to the we are the priests of the temples of syrinx and the whole thing would just go yellow haze from behind and i'd light the band up in red and it would just be like surreal and those are the kind of effects that i would haul around that the crew hated me for because they were so large and horrible and that basically you're welding at that point right that yes. using that many arcs you're actually just you were welding on stage and somebody would just have to put up a sheet in front of it and deal with it <laughs> hey we're doing this for art yeah deal with it I, I did a lot of crazy stuff i took world war ii searchlights and put them on mark lifts and used it as audience lighting once and then for the who when they did uh, tommy here in toronto on the they did like, you know, I think they were here for a couple nights and they wanted something outrageous. I took 24 air to ground searchlights and put them around the venue behind the stage on an arc and had cut gels for them and had everybody on headsets doing gel changes with these things in the air going over the crowd from when they did the see me, feel me part. It was just like amazing. Did... Were you getting any input from the band? Was this their idea or was this where they were just like, I don't know, Howard's a man, mad, madman, let him do his thing. That's basically what it turned out. Like this guy does crazy stuff and it's going to look amazing. And do you want to do it? You know, after I did that for the who super trap was having a problem with her audience lighting and I brought those in, I lit the audience with the uh, air to ground searchlights with the diffusion gel in it. It just like was amazing when they did breakfast in America. Brilliant. Yeah. So you were, you were basically given carte blanche to just do whatever crazy stuff you could come up with. I'd be brought in by like directors. Okay. You know, say like, who do we get? Like, we need some crazy shit. Who do we get? And they said, well, go, go get Howard. Howard does this crazy shit. You know, I did a movie shoot once. It was called freak show. And it was, a, a movie where we created all the environments with lasers. It was like the actors were inside of laser environments with lots of smoke and stuff. When was, when was this? When, would, when oh, did you start using lasers? Uh, I started using, well, I was, Blue Oyster Cult turned me on to lasers like 1973. It was okay. Do, Dr. David Alfonte. He, he would come up on the stage in a white lab coat and do lasers. For, and that's when the lasers, when they were like, you know, glass tubes, and they would have krypton and argon gas in them and 60 PSI of water cooling them. There were 480 volts with a big transformer that was clunky and weighed a ton. Well, it was not easy back then with lasers, right? But I got, yeah. I got into lasers way back when. And yes, I did buy a plethora of those horrible lasers. And we used them from up until about five years ago. We used them until the new technology came out. And, now they're the size of microwave ovens and three times more powerful and way better software. I mean, just to get a single beam back then, I mean, you needed satellites to link up and you needed a, 
a boatload no, of power need, and you didn't need satellites to win. <laughs> but you did it was it was very scientific i mean we were using optical glass tables which i still use like you know there's a whole generation that just said well fuck this we're not going to use mirrors we're not going to use optical glass that's a hassle let's just use scanners and do everything out of a scanner well that's all well and good kids but when you want a nice rock solid beam you know you don't want to be using a scanner to do a rock solid beam you want to go through optical glass and glass splitters so the beams are rock solid you Got know it. just like but also optical glass could break up your beam into 20 beams or 180 beams or whatever you want. And uh, I still use optical glass. I used it for Hewlett Packard. We, we did the Antarctic Dome at Coachella last year for them. They did, a, they did a 360 degree video projection and we did a 360 degree laser projection sat on top of their video. It worked together seamlessly. And at one point in time, we can put down this optical glass in front of our lasers and do the northern lights effect on the dome. It was spectacular. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just one, one uh, league behind you where the first time I was exposed to lasers was like a, a Pink Floyd laser dome. And it was, it was very, very cool. But I, I wouldn't say it was mind-blowing. It wasn't until that they got so bright that, I mean, the impact was cutting through the air and the beams, and uh, I mean, we've come so far with lasers. Uh, I, it, it, it's amazing. You clearly oh. saw the, the opportunities long before most other people did. Oh, absolutely! I've been in this, the laser business for a long time, and. Um, you know, matter of fact, in 1996, I provided the lasers for Mark Brickman to use on the Division Bell tour, and they used what was called a copper vapor laser, and I got it in England from Oxford Laser Corporation. We, we had it brought in, burned copper, and it was a copper beam that came out gold. Brickman loved it. It was like, but what a hassle that thing was. You had to feed it. If it ever went down, 45 minutes to reboot it. And it has to cool. And it's like, it's melting copper. That's what you <laughs> You were burning copper to get the, the exact color that you were looking for out of a laser? Yeah, it was called a copper vapor laser. Vaporizes the copper and puts out a gold beam. 1996, Pink Floyd. And if you ran out of, you just started chucking pennies in there? It's like running out of air. You don't want to run out of air. You know, you just keep, you know, you just keep putting it, you know, and make sure you have enough. And then when, when you're done with the effect, you shut it down, let it cool, get it ready for the next cue. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't be up for another 45 minutes, so you're going to have to move that song in the set list now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it worked out fine. It was like it was unique. Nobody had that. Up until then, I, uh, all I, I only remember red and green. Those were your laser options then. Actually, your laser options were cyan, which is your what you're calling green. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it was, it was um, argon. Is also cyan was deemed argon gas. Got and it. You had, and you had red which was your krypton gas. 
And when you'd have your argon and krypton mixed, you'd have the mixed gas laser. And then out of that, through color boxes, you can split it out and get whatever color you want. Got it. That makes, that makes more sense. Yeah. And you have to cross your fingers that the stage has never hooked you up to a hot water supply so the tubes wouldn't crack. Because when a tube would crack in an old school laser, it would cost you twenty to $30,000 to repair it. Wow, that's a, that's a learning curve there. Yes. I hope you would learn that, that lesson once. I learned it four times. Four times? Yeah, and it wasn't, you know, my fault. I remember Seattle, we had two lasers. that They reversed the water supplies, and you don't know that unless you put your hand under the water. When, you know, we originally put our hand under the water, it was cold. Of course, of course. And then when it goes out the other side, after it goes through the laser, it comes out warm. So if it was warm going in, you couldn't tell it because it was warm coming out. And it sealed off, off at the source, so you couldn't. All you can do is grab the hose at the source and go, fuck, this is hot. <laughs> this is the hard knocks learning curve that your generation paved the way for us. Yeah. As the next generation, thank you. Thank you for... for for taking all those lumps. We stand on your shoulders to, to be able to, to present things these days that those are things we didn't have to go through. No, it's, it became a lot easier later on, you know, in, in, in the beginning. I mean, you know, once, once the VO1 came out, you know, it was all uphill from there. It was, I remember when I first saw it in Genesis, like I swore to myself when I first saw an automated fixture, as much as I loved it, I am going to exhaust my ideas with theatrical lighting fully before I move over to these automated fixtures because I wanted to accomplish whatever I could to freak people out theatrically because, you know, I'm a theater guy at heart. Uh -huh. But at the end of the day, when I started going to do my outlandish, crazy things that included everything from video to lasers and... I'll tell you right now, before LED screens, I wanted an IMAX format projection for Rush. And I couldn't get it. It was like a kid that can't get a toy he wants. And I'm like, well, I want that. And IMAX would say, no, it takes too long to align our projectors. And you need it aligned in a day. It's not, it's not like that. And we don't rent this projector out. This is ours. It's our invention. Nobody else will get to use it. And I just thought to myself, yeah, we'll see about that. And I went back to the drawing board. I created my own nightmare, but I went back to the drawing board. And I said, you know, let's do this with 35 mil projectors and we'll use three of them. And I'll get an 80 foot wide screen and we're gonna do an IMAX projection. And then I went and sat with my animators and I went through this whole thing and I went down a C factor and I said, who has projectors? And they go, you gotta talk to this guy named uh, Brent Farron. He's got this company called Associates and Fern. So I said, okay, I'll talk to Brent Farron. And I went down to spoke to him. Like, this is my concept. He goes, okay, well, I can rent you the projectors and blah, blah, blah. And I, I got them. Then I had the rehearsal time with these projectors. And I had my animators creating the animations. So we had, you know, stage right, center stage, stage left. And everything got, got a soft edge on it. So it would all blend together as one video projection when they all ran.
The only problem was, and I had to learn this during rehearsal, was that none of the projectors had what were called encoders built into them. So all the motors were running at different speeds, so the film would always not sync up with each other. Okay. The longer we would roll it, the more out of whack it would get. And of course. And then we figured out that in, we have to call up Brent Farron and go, why didn't you hip us to the, we need encoders to line up the motors. So that when we go to zero on the film loop, it all rolls in perfect sync. Well, he didn't ask me for that. He didn't tell me what you were doing. I'm like, well, that's what we're doing. And he goes, well, then you're going to have to have this. And so we managed to get everything running. And then we did it every day. We'd set these three projectors up and we would, we, we, we rolled it and we got our 80 foot wide projections, you know, and then there were some days where ignorance would happen. And like my projectionist decided he would do some editing and he cut some film one day and he lost sync of where the other two rolls and we had to spend our whole day off in a hotel room counting sprocket holes. That was great. That we spent like, you know, 18 hours counting sprocket holes so we could do the show the next day. Nobody slept. We were like burned out. It was like nine in the morning. We were going to the gig to line it up. And it was like, holy shit. But it did look great. When it rolled, it looked amazing. It was this is just a consistent theme with you. You were just like, I will not take no for an answer. And if anybody tells me no, I'm just going to do it myself. I'm just going to take it. That's probably why I got the Visionary Award in 2014. <laughs> like, no one really knows what I do. You know, I'm sort of fly under the radar, you know. And for years, I, I did program my own shows in the beginning. And then I, what happened was, while I was programming my shows, I would run into these glitches, software glitches that would just take my mind off of what I was creating. And I would just have to fix the problem in the software and forget what I was doing creatively. And it would it piss me off so much that I wound up saying, you know something, I'm just going to get an assistant programmer, get somebody in here who can program. I'll just tell them what I want. When a problem comes up, I'll just go off and think about what I want to do and come back when he's ready. This way I would not lose my train of thought. Right? Yeah. That's just another perfect example of Howard just, making shit happen regardless of what anybody else tells him he can or can't do he's like no i'm gonna make shit happen i just love challenges you know it's like that's what I'm, when i started production design you know with my partner brian Beggs, we just would take projects on like we had companies calling us up saying hey can you put a, a beer logo on the moon i'm like no we can't do that or can you put a beer logo in the on a cloud for you know i said yeah I can put a beer logo on the cloud, but can you guarantee me there will be a cloud where you want it when I <laughs> ready to do this? Because I can't. <laughs> you know, I had a lot of, you know, people asking outlandish stuff. I still do. I still had it. Even this week I had somebody ask me. You know, I do a lot of films and motion pictures and stuff. I'm probably, you know, I've, I've got the laser effects down for film exactly you know, and I have some great directors up here that I work with that will understand that, and, you know, I know how to make them look good in a camera. Okay. So we did this American Gods um, episodes or seasons one, two, and three. And when they use lasers and they, and they transporting people between time, 
we did all the laser effects on that. But when I started this company, you know, we just wanted to do spectacular things. And, you know, whoever I had to use to assist, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I don't have a big ego. I just sort of like collaborations and I talk uh -huh. with everyone and, you know, nobody taught me how to do it really anything it was all self-taught self-learning and I didn't have someone that I could go to and go hey what do you think we should do here and what do you think we should do there you know nobody actually gave me much help in the beginning it was it was Bob C and all those guys that when I started talking to them they sort of grasped hold that this guy is a lunatic and yeah let's try to see what we can do and they did I mean, I've had people say, you know, we hated you during that tour. You made us hang 158 lights and you only used them for 10 seconds in a song. And I'm like, yeah, so. Yeah, but those 10 seconds were fucking awesome. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. You know, that's what makes a good show. And it's always less is more. I never had more than eight trucks. Eight trucks on the last Rush tour is what I had. I never had any more than that. I used to do it with five trucks. Wow. You know, and that's for everything. Not just lights, everything. You got a lot of bang out of your buck for that. That's oh, for yeah. sure. Well, less is more, you know? Yeah. Especially when you're lighting air. <laughs> so we are almost out of time, but one of the questions I really wanted to get to was I've been hearing a lot of people kind of pretend that the, the COVID period is like their uh, trial run at retirement. And we've we've had a couple of discussions about that. I'm like, but the the general consensus seems to be that you can't retire from our industry because it's not a just a job. Where do you land on that spectrum? Do you, is there is it possible to retire from what we do? Um, was, what was that? The word was like re, 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 retire. <laughs> I can't even say it, Chris. I, I can't even say that word, buddy. It, it, it doesn't exist because it's not, we're not, <laughs> I'm not retiring. No, I'm ready to jump on anything I can, you know, jump on to make it happen. I feel like there's a myth that has perpetuated itself before us where there's people could have a job and then they would put money into a pension. And then when they're done doing whatever it is that they don't like doing, then they get to enjoy their life free from the job that they were chained to. Hmm. that's not that doesn't even exist for us does it let me ask you this question are you chained to your job no i i would <laughs> oh i was chained to rush for four decades <laughs> oh that was horrible it's like come on the clocking like, in and out and the yeah you know, no i was chained to general motors up here in canada for 14 years i enjoyed that too you know, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I don't look at it as, you know, I take pleasure in what I do. I always have, you know, as, as stressful and ignorant as, you know, it can be at times, the joy and to seeing the looks on people's faces. I mean, Chris, I have three generations, in some cases, almost four generations of people coming to me, thanking me for helping them in, through them watching my shows with their children. It's like the grandfather, the father, the father's kids. 
coming out to the lighting console all together, telling me that, you know, we have been watching you for all these years and my whole family is indebted to what you've done. And, and it makes you feel so good. I get endless emails like that. Wow. You know, I just did another, an, another uh, podcast with a guy named Chris Kanzi. You know him? I don't know him yet. He has one called Radio Check. Okay. So one. Check out episode 11. I and absolutely you, will. You know, and Chris Kanzi is the production manager for Roger Waters and Tool. Okay. And I met Chris a long time ago when we were partying over at the, uh, the Rainbow in LA. <laughs> the famous Rainbow. And uh -huh. uh, so, yeah, so you know, there's, uh, I've had a lot of fun. And I'm going to continue to have a lot of fun because I'm watching too many people not making it yeah. past 2020. And I'm including some close, very close friends, as you know, my buddy from Russia. And I have a few, yeah. friends, a few friends from Russia that are no longer with us now. And, you know, the, I was actually with Tool the day that it was announced on the radio about Neil. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, those guys and their wives were so comforting. I have to say they're really great guys. And, you know, they're all very – and that night, Danny Carey did a drum solo. He put a picture of him and Neil side by side up on the screen, and he played Neil's drum, uh, drum solo during his drum solo too. It was wow. awesome. It was really – I had tears in my eyes that whole day. It was kind of hard. I kept having to run to the corner of the arena and sit down by myself. And now look, that's all we can do is sit down by ourselves in an arena. <laughs> no one, but yeah, it was, it was hard. Man. It was a hard, emotionally hard. So. We have to be one of the very few industries that when we're asked to leave work, we're the only ones we were like, Hey, no, we, we need, let us back in. We, you can't, we're actually locked out from our job now we're not chained to our job yeah well we'll get back to that we will we'll get back to it we'll make something happen we have to I'm not, I'm not done entertaining people no i'm not done being entertained either that's good thank you howard this has been amazing this is a little bit of just visionary this is why this is why we do this so this is Thank awesome. you so much for helping me get the word out, and uh, I look forward to seeing how how strong we are on September 22nd up in Canada. Just to mention it again, it is lightuplive.ca if you want to check it out. And It'll be good. Everything we can turn red. Every single person that notices something that's red is just one more person that realizes that, that we miss concerts. We miss Absolutely. coming together. Absolutely, buddy. And thank you for giving me the time to actually come up here and, and bore everybody. <laughs> thank you, Howard. I appreciate it. You're welcome. <laughs>